What's up, guys? Shane Larson here from the Game Time Guru. You know, in the sport of basketball, the Princeton offense has this negative stigma around it. Or at least I feel it does, right? Well, today we're going to break that. We're going to break the stigma by bringing on an expert in the Princeton offense to talk about all the insights behind it. And I hope you guys find it as insightful as I did, because as a coach myself, I can say I had a, a, a bad idea or a bad, uh, just, just didn't think highly of the Princeton offense is basically what I'm trying to say. And listening to our guests and getting to know him more and more, it has shown me how powerful it can be. And I love what he's doing today. We're going to learn about, you know, his philosophy as a coach utilizing the Princeton offense and why he does that. But he's also going to be talking about how he's helping other coaches. What, did, what services he provides to help other coaches who are aspiring to do the same thing and implement the same strategies into their teams. Um, and, and, and the clinics that he's running and what he's doing online so that you can reach him. You're not going to want to miss this one. This is a great interview for aspiring coaches and head coaches alike, anybody who's in the coaching world, and any basketball fan for that matter. So strap up. This is the Game Time Guru. So what time is it? Game Time Boost. This is the Game Time Guru podcast, where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the podcast. Hopefully you're enjoying the show. If you're if you're new to it though, and this is your first time listening, I just want to say welcome aboard. Uh, excited to have you guys here. I always just encourage you guys to hit that subscribe button on whichever podcast platform that you're listening on. Obviously, the audio side of my show has been what's grown the most over the last seven years, but I do have a YouTube channel that I'm putting the episodes out on as well. So if you want to follow me over there, feel free. Um, I, I like to have the video content as well as the audio side, but Thanks in large part to the listeners. We are now in 180 countries and all 50 states. We've grown this thing organically, and I just can't thank you guys enough for tuning in and you know being part of this. And I also have to thank the guests that have been on the show because they're sharing their stories and sharing their knowledge, and then their audiences too will listen in and and uh, join the show as well. So all of it, it's a, it takes a village to grow this, and I appreciate everybody for tuning in the last seven years. So as you guys heard in the introduction, we're going to be talking a little bit of basketball. As you guys know, I'm actually a, a coach for the club basketball side of things. Right now, and at the time of this recording, I'm actually three days away from heading up to Seattle, Washington for a tournament this weekend. Um, so by the time this comes out, this this tournament will already be done. But I love the sport of basketball. I was talking to our guests uh, in in Florida just a few weeks back. I was at a work event for my full-time job at ClickFunnels, and I was at a work event, and I was talking to them, and I'll be darned, we don't have like, like we have all these like similar interests and everything. He's a, a wealth of knowledge in the basketball space, and we're going to be learning more from him. So joining the show is John Wheeler. John, thanks so much for joining us, brother. Hey, I appreciate it, Shane. Really, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I'm stoked to have you, man. I am. Uh, I'm very interested in what you provide in the the basketball space, specifically with you know the way in which you teach the concepts of the Princeton offense. And we're going to be kind of diving into that. But before we do, I, I want to rewind the clock, John. And before you started, like in the coaching side of things, and like into this realm. Let's talk about your sports background and, and your basketball background. Uh, were you did you compete as an athlete in the sport of basketball, or were you more of like a coach your whole entire life? Kind of talk to us about your background in this. <laughs> I did. So I got a late start uh, as a player. I didn't start playing until the seventh grade. Like like all kids, I'm from Central Ohio. Since I was five years old, I've been playing baseball. 
Basketball for me, it was just a late start. I started playing in the seventh grade, uh, got cut in the seventh grade. And then the following year, I'm like, well, I'll, I'll, I found one buddy. We just started playing over the summer, playing one-on-one. And then pretty much it was just us, one-on-one. Eighth grade year, I made the team, sat the bench. I think I scored four points the entire year. I was like four for four for four at the free throw line in the last game of the year. And that's how I, that's the first four points I'd ever scored. Freshman year, I made JV, sat the bench. Uh, sophomore year, made varsity, didn't play the first 12 games of the year, then started flipping back and forth. Junior and senior year, I started every game. And then my senior year, I was uh, co-MVP of our, of, our, of our team. So it, it, it was a little bit different journey. I was a little bit slow to learn the game, slow to start the game. And, and I think that's kind of uh, informed the, uh, the, the philosophy behind the way I coach now. Oh, interesting. So at what point, John, did you know that you wanted to actually coach the sport? And I think, you know, I, I really think it was right after my senior year, because right after my senior year, I graduated. I went to the Ohio State University, which I, we had that in common. That was kind of you didn't go to Ohio State, but you said you're a big Buckeye fan, right? I'm a huge Buckeyes fan. I've got Maurice Claret right behind me. There you go. He's stripping it in the, the national title game. And then I've got my picture. You can't see it here with my dad and I at the Notre Dame game last nice. year right behind me. So I'm a huge Buckeyes fan, man. Nice. Well, when I when I went to high when I went to college, um, I that the summer before that I went I went with my high school varsity program to summer camp. We would go down to or the summer it was our uh, yeah, big team camp in summer. We would go down to Cincinnati, and I believe Bob Huggins was the coach at the, at the time in Cincinnati when we had gone down there. So I went down with it with him that summer. And the following year, my freshman year at Ohio State, I started just in the newspaper because you know this is two thousand. Yeah, the fall of 2000, 2001, there was, there was no Facebook. There was nothing like that to, to go up and find job opportunities on. So I was looking in the classifieds in the Columbus Dispatch for just basketball positions. I didn't know you could go to uh, the, the OHSAA.org site and you can look up and say, hey, you know, where, where are the coaching jobs at? And uh, I was almost going to take over a, uh, uh, just a small you know, youth league somewhere down downtown in Columbus. Um, and at the time, I also had started up as a practice player for the women at Ohio State. So that was kind of like my collegiate pl playing experience. I did that for three years. That was a blast. That was Beth Burns' final three years. That was a blast. I, I could not have asked for a better uh, experience not being a player in college. Um, but then uh, uh, my uncle recommended me to uh, his daughter's best friend's husband, who just got a job um, at a, at a Division one school in Columbus, Westerville South. And I volunteered for him for seven or I started volunteering for him while I was a practice player. So I was working with high school girls and I was um, uh, a practice player for the women at Ohio State. And I, I'm like, I was like, oh, I was going to go coach boys and be all this thing. And then it just kind of threw me into the loop. But that, that's what got my that's what got me started in coaching. Man, that's it's actually yeah. a very unique story. It's not like your traditional route to getting into the coaching world. Which I, I and I'm not, I'm not a teacher either. Never, never got into teaching. So, yeah. No, that's so cool to me, man. This is what's awesome about like meeting people like yourself. I like to hear the stories. Everyone's got a unique journey, right? Um, so, let's dissect that whole like practice player for the yeah. like. Can you talk? Like people probably heard that when you just said that. And are like, hold on, did he say what I think he said? Like, does that make sense? I don't know if everybody understands what happened there. Do you mind dissecting that a little bit and kind of explaining yeah, what that so, was like being a practice player for the women? Yeah, so I was uh, just going to uh, – it was Larkins Hall down at Ohio State on campus. I was just going down there to, just to work out because that's – before that was before they've done all – now I, I drive down there today, and I'm like, I don't recognize a single thing because it, it, it's just going vertical and it's, it's getting huge down there. 
Um, but we'd go down, down Larkins Hall, and on the wall, I saw a poster said, how would you like to play in the shot? And I'm like, well, yeah. So I just I, I looked it up, and it was as I kept kind of going through the information, it was to be a practice player for the women. And um, that's something that they were using at the time. Just try to raise the level of competition uh, for for the for the for the ladies on the court. And um, I, once I got in there, I'm like, this is great. I, I couldn't ask for anything more than this. I, I like the structure of the game. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't at that point in time looking to really compete anywhere. But I'm like, this this is great. I love I, I miss the practices. I miss that, you know something would happen. They would run sprints. I'd get on the, get on the floor baseline, baseline. I would run sprints with them. It was just like, it was that community that, that I had missed from high school. I love that, dude. That's actually really cool. I didn't even know until I, you said that you actually told me that in Florida. Um, I didn't know that was even a possibility. I was like, what? That's actually pretty yeah. cool. Did you find, um, now there's a lot of haters on that, that, that want to hate on, you know, women's athletics and stuff, but I want to know your honest opinion, John, after having competed with them and understanding how they competed that, that level, uh, what are your overall thoughts on the competition of division one women's basketball? Oh, it, it was a completely new experience for me. I didn't, I mean, at, at that point in time, I would say I was oblivious to a lot of the world coming from, you know, way out in the country and, and not being experienced. I didn't know what AAU was until I got into college. So oh, wow. it was it was just kind of like, you know, I was just kind of uh, a little bit inexperienced to a lot of that stuff. But once I got there, it was I was very, very surprised at not only now. And I would say for the for the average player, I mean, sometimes there's not as big an athletic gap as you think for, for maybe the average high school boys player. Um, but once once you get there, I mean, there were girls that they, they weren't dunking the basketball, but there were three of them that could get up and grab the rim. Um, so they were very athletic. They were very quick. They were extremely skilled. Um, and in a lot of ways, they were more skilled than I was, especially uh, handling the ball. I wasn't a, a point guard at the time. I had to teach myself to be a point guard over those next three years just to, to mimic what they were going to experience. So that's uh, actually took my game up a little bit of a step because I had to had to increase my skills to kind of help them in certain areas. Um, but the, the, the way that they compete, uh, the, the way that they would work together, the way that they would talk, it was just like you go to, to any uh, um, collegiate practice. Now it was, it was just intense. It was professional. Uh, they, and once they saw that I was committed and, and the other practice players were committed, I mean, they just kind of welcomed us in like family. It was a very, very cool experience. And I, I've, I've had a huge respect for the women's game now. And um, again, like I said, simultaneously, I started coaching a high school girls basketball team the first two years as a volunteer why well, I was a practice player and uh, you know, my, my respect for that side of the game. And it's not like I had a lack of respect. I just had no experience with it. So it was really eye opening for me and, um, and, and certainly, certainly um, caught my attention and respect. Totally. No, I'm glad you said that. Cause I mean, there's a lot of us, I, I can probably say myself included that probably don't, I, I think it's the exact same. We're just kind of uh, ignorant to the fact of like, we don't know what we don't know in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't say we don't respect them because I obviously respect anybody who can compete at a high level, mm -hmm. but um, maybe we just don't know. And we're, we need to see that. So it's cool to hear it from somebody who's been there, man. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to know is when you were at Ohio state, was that during the time of like Scooney pin Michael red, or was that before the time you actually got there? I just had that random question <laughs> because those are some of the, the good days. Okay. So I was a 2000 grad and um, so my, so my junior year, 99, we played Columbus West it was the year after Scooney, or I'm saying it was the year after Michael Red had graduated. I got Michael, I had Michael Red's autograph on a shoe somewhere. I didn't know who he was at the time. It was 1998. And 
And uh, but I got his autograph on my shoe and Columbus West just wiped the floor with us. When I was at Ohio State, um, I I think that was just after their time. I, I can't remember exactly when they graduated, but I did get to talk to Scooney and Ken Johnson once at an open gym because they they had used to play with a with a kid who graduated from my alma mater. And I'm like, hey, you remember this kid? He used to do this and this. And he's like, oh, wasn't that kid that could just jump out of the gym and dunk and all that? He's like, man, he was telling him all these stories about how he played with him in the Worthington Leagues. It was kind of a cool little moment, but. Yeah, that's actually kind of cool. So the only reason I asked that is like, I know I'm like kind of aging myself right now, but I was in middle school uh, when Scooney Penn and, and Michael Red were there. And, you know, Michael Red went over to the Bucks and all that stuff in the NBA. And I talked to a guy on my show about Michael Red, and it was George Carl's son. His name's Kobe Carl. He used to play for Boise State, and he's now a coach in the G League. But Kobe was on my show, and he was telling me about how Michael Red was like the hardest worker he's ever seen. And he was like 17 years old at the time, and Michael Red was new into the NBA, and he just worked hard and stuff. So anyway, it's a it's a whole Buckeye thing I had to ask anyway, just because you were there. But okay, so so John, going back to the coaching side of things, I I uh, personally have my own thoughts on the transition between the playing and coaching. It's it's a different skill set. Like not always the best players don't always make the best coaches, just like the best employees don't always make the best managers. That's what I always say. Like there's a different skill set that's involved um, with with coaching. And it's been a learning curve for me. Um, I've only been coaching at this level for like the high school kids for for three years at the club level. So um, I'm curious what the biggest transition was for you, John, is from going from playing to then coaching. Well, I tell you, and, and like I said, I, I was certainly uh, naive to certain parts of the game coming up, just getting that late start um, as a player. So I, I had a slow understanding of the game and eventually it picked up to the way that, I, you know, I became one of the better players. Uh, and then my senior year being, again, just, you know, one of the uh, the MVPs of the league when they give you out the trophies at the end of the year. Um, but as a coach, it almost just kind of started back over, just got, took me right back then to when I was just starting again. Because when you start as a coach, again, it's like you don't have – everything that we all try to, we all try to, we all have our philosophy. We all have our way of believing uh, this is how you do this. This is what kind of offense you run. This is what kind of defense you run. Again, I was still naive to what kind of offense that there was more than one type of offense to run or, you know, it just wasn't something I was, uh, you know, had been exposed to from that perspective. And if I were to fast forward a little bit, I don't think I even developed my own personal philosophy until I became a head coach. And until then, I just borrowed my mentor's philosophy. You know, when I was passing out the philosophy papers to uh, to the parents and to the players, I mean, it was his because I, I, I don't think I had really developed or knew who I was as a coach yet. I knew what direction I was going. I knew now what offense I wanted to run, what defense I wanted to run. Um, we wanted to play fast. We wanted to pressure and deny. We were running a Princeton style offense. And but I still didn't know the exact strategy I was trying to execute with that. Um, and so as as a as a transitioning from player to coach, it was really kind of like starting over. The only way that I could really connect with the players was on the skill side. I could still play. Uh, and that was actually the first uh, the first responsibility I was given. Is, hey, wheels, why don't you go ahead and take them through the skill work? And that's what I started doing, which was which was actually a huge step for me because I'm like, this is the first time I've ever had responsibility over, you know, a, a group of players in my life. So it was a very, very, uh, very neat transition. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've experienced some of that myself, man. It was uh, like, I know the game. You think you know the game because you played it, but then like trying to articulate that to people coming up with your own philosophies, like running drills, there's different things. And you're like, man, you have to have a practice plan. Then you have to make adjustments. And when you get into game situations, you have to be able to make adjustments and you don't have control. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's one thing, John, that I've struggled with as a coach is like not having control. You can tell the kids and they can say they're going to do what they what they want, but then like they turn the ball over. Like we, we waste a time out. They turn the ball over. I'm like, dude, we, you, you, yeah. get, you gotta have patience and learn and it, it's, it's yeah. a hard transition but it's also a fun one so um, I, I was very forced in that aspect so i i just we just did a clinic last weekend like three days ago and i just got back and one of the, one of the big things we talk about when we work with our coaches online is you know a lot of a lot of coaches aren't fortunate enough to have good mentors and i had uh, uh two mentors when i was my, at my time at westerville south jeff brenning and ed Kalo who are both lifetime coaches and they're, they're like, you know, students of the game themselves. And they've been doing it since the seventies, the eighties and nineties. And it was just, you know, not everyone gets that, that experience. I was fortunate enough. I think that that kind of sped up my learning process from, from where I was. So, um, so one of the things that we do online is, you know, a lot of coaches don't, that don't have that mentorship. We try to provide that as well. So I just want to say that I, I was very fortunate to have that kind of um, structure, um, as a, as transitioning from player to coach, because, you know, sometimes if you don't have that, it takes a little bit longer for you to learn some things. I appreciate you saying that. And we're going to go over what you're doing online here in just a little yeah. bit too. So don't, we got to put that in our back pocket because that's a, that's a big piece to what you're doing. That's why I wanted to have you on the show, but I, I am glad that you mentioned the mentorship. Do you mind maybe sharing like one or two things you've learned from those two individuals that you, like specific things that you sure. learned from them um, here on the thing, just so other coaches that are listening to the podcast, can see like how important a mentor is when you're trying to bring up the young talent. I, I think it was, I, th I think the first time I really appreciated it was again, when I became a head coach and then I started having to interview coaches to be on my staff. And yeah. then when I would start asking questions, you know, I, I was trying to gauge um, because again, I, we were probably about, not about 45 minutes outside of the city, um, very rural town. And trying to gauge, you know, what's what's your this applicate this applicant, like, you know, what's your knowledge of the game? You know, what would you do in this situation? How would you approach this? How would you install this? And sometimes you would get answers like, "You just tell me what to do, and I'll get I'll figure it out." You know, I'm like, oh, I was like, you know, you could just tell that they haven't had that that professional structure in in, in the past as they've you know um, as they've grown into their coaching career. But then you find some guys who like. They would have that. They would have a little bit of that mentorship, but maybe they weren't very detailed guys. But then you would find other guys who are like, "Man, I want to become a head coach," and and I'm always looking for uh, when I was trying to find someone. I always want to try find someone who wanted to become a head coach, because yeah. you knew that they were going to take your mentorship probably a little bit more serious than than maybe others. So, um, but that was one of the first experiences I had of, of you know trying to trying to find actually you know appreciating that for myself. Um, but you, you have being a head coach, it's, it's, oh man, it's, it's not for everybody. It's, it's like Simon Sinek says about leadership, you know, it's like, you know, not everyone was born to be a leader. Not everyone wants to be a leader. Not everyone should be a leader. It's kind of the same thing when it comes to coaching. So it's, uh, but when, when you're, when you're talking to lifelong head coach, co coaches, they're, they just give you these little insights, like, you know, especially when it comes to problems with um, players and parents. And one of the biggest complaints that we all have is like, well, you know, th this this parent thinks that this player should be playing in front of that player. And it's like, you, you know, just the, the just different nuances of ways to communicate with them. And and again, that kind of also goes back to your philosophy. What what do you you know, what are your what is your philosophy on how um, to speak with parents and not, not how to deal with parents. It's not like you deal with them, but you, how do you, how do you communicate with them and how do you 
get them to understand. It's like, hey, you know, I, I also have your son's or daughter's best interests at heart. But I have while while you are only focused on your son or daughter, I'm focusing on your son or daughter and within the concept of this entire team so that we can all succeed at the highest level we can. So um, but sometimes getting that kind of perspective from a mentor is something that that you might not get if you've come up coaching and didn't have someone to bounce, Hey, what happens when you get in this situation? And they've, and if you don't have that person that's been there before, sometimes, you know, it takes you longer to learn it. And sometimes you learn the lesson the hard way. Yeah, man, that's such good insight, dude. This is what's cool is like, you have that knowledge, super important. And I will say from my, my side, this just happened as early as last week, last Thursday. Uh, one of the guys that I, I have a, an immense amount of respect for, he's a local high school coach here in our area, but his name is Jeff Saner. And uh, he was running one of our drills. He was doing a basically a shooting uh, workout for about an hour and a half at our club practice. So I was focused on one of the courts and making sure that they were doing what he was telling them to do. But I said, coach, you would have hated me in high school. I'm just going to tell you that right now. If I would played for you, you would have hated me because like he would tell a drill really quickly. Right, Johnny, was, he'd say, this is what we do. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, telling, and you can tell like 90% of the kids are like trying to like process what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to go with the ball because there's like four kids moving at the same time. And then they, you want, like they start the drill and they're, they're scared to do the drill because they don't know what they're supposed to do. And he's going to yell at them. Anyway, I was like, you would have hated me, man. I needed to have a walkthrough at least once to have a visual. And then I was fine. But like, you don't even do that. But he said something that stuck with me. John, it's these little things that like you were talking about. He goes, nah, Shane, you would have been just fine. He goes, you would have been just fine under me. It would have taken you 15 minutes in my very first practice to realize these are the expectations that I set. You're going to have to pick things up quickly. And then you would have risen to the, like you would, you would rise to the occasion. Like you would understand that these are the expectations of the coach. I need to do that. And the reason he said he does that, he goes, I run every practice this way. Every single drill that I do is quick. You've got to figure it out because he doesn't have that much time in a timeout. He goes, if I have a timeout, I have to draw up a play. I don't have time to walk you through the play. You have to pick it up and figure it out. He goes, so I need these kids to understand how to think quickly and pick it up quickly. And I was like, ah, so those are those little tiny things that I think that you're talking about those intricacies. I took that with me even just like last week. I was like, oh. Okay, the little tiny things like that. That's why he does it that way. It's not just because he has a personality that's, you know, doesn't care. No, he really cares. He needs his kids to figure it out quickly. So, uh, and that's why they compete for state championships the last four years. Like, that's what he's doing. He's He's got his players playing at a high level. So, I think it's so cool that you said that. Now, the Princeton offense, uh, like, that's in, in the title of this podcast and then in the introduction. We're talking about the Princeton offense. That's a focal point for you. You talked about philosophies. Each coach builds their own philosophies and and so forth. And you are huge about the Princeton office offense. Talk to our listeners right now that, I mean, most of them are sports fans, but they might not be basketball players or they might be, and they don't really have a full understanding. They just play the game. Talk to us. Give us like a, I guess a, a kindergarten breakdown of the Princeton <laughs> offense and what it even is. Yeah. And so before I get into that, let me just say something about Princeton is, is it has a lot of stigma to it. Uh -huh. And the stigma is it's a slowdown offense. You need to have smart players, high IQ players to run it. You have to be able to shoot threes um, to be able to execute this offense. And I think that stigma comes from the fact that coaches, uh, most coaches who, when you think of Princeton, and I think that stigma is starting to change a little bit. But when I was learning it in 2002, 2003, the only teams we had ever seen run the Princeton offense was Princeton University the Air Force Academy, Northwestern, and the Big Ten. And we're seeing them run it at a slower tempo. And I think what coaches have to understand is the reason they those programs were running the Princeton offense at a slower clip is because the players that they were able to recruit versus the players that they were competing with. Competing with. 
So they had to have a strategy to contrast the different styles of play so that they could keep the score a little bit closer. And because they, they couldn't recruit the best talent, but they could recruit as skilled of players as they possibly could. And then they had to have that strategy to kind of buffer a little bit to, to get them to where they could compete. That's why that's how Princeton was, you know, known as the giant killer. They were, you know, up, upsetting UCLA in 96. They were competing with, with Arkansas and North Carolina and Georgetown in the eighties and nineties um, because they had, it's not as, not as much about the offense as it was the strategy they were trying to execute with the offense. They were trying to slow the game down. They were trying to remove the tension from the game. And, and if you ask one of, uh, if you ask a Joe Scott or a Chris Mooney, who's at Richmond, or if you ask a Bill, Bill Carmody, one of the reasons they do what they do is to, to take the tension out of the game. So they're not fighting the strength of their opponent. And when we just wrapped up this clinic and when I'm now working with coaches, they ask, you know, well, I don't want to run Princeton because it's a slow down offense. I'm like, well, if, if you've ever seen Georgetown, when John Thompson III was there with Jeff Green and Roy Hibbert, you know, they didn't slow the Princeton offense down. When Herb Sendek switched to it at NC State, that was before he went to Arizona, he didn't slow it down when he was in NC State, but he also fell trapped to some of that stigma when it came to recruiting. Other coaches say, no, they run that Princeton stuff. They slow it down. And so, but it, that, that stigma kind of follows, but I, I think once you can get past that, and you can learn that there, there's really four strategies. And before I get to four strategies, there's two. When I talk to a coach, there's two different ways you can win. You can have superior talent, or you can have a superior talent with good enough players, or you can have good enough players with a superior strategy. Those are the two ways we talk about how to win. But now, when you talk about the different strategies you want to execute on the court, you can either play slower than your opponent, you can play faster than your opponent, you can play more physical than your opponent or you can play in more space than your opponent. And what we do with the Princeton offense is now we're adjusting it to the personnel you have and the players you're playing against so that we can contrast those styles. You know, when a coach says, hey, you know, when we come back in the locker room or in a timeout, say, hey, we kind of make them play our game. That's what we're trying to do. Dude, <laughs> I love all of this. It's because it does have one. Like I, I was writing down notes, by the way, like I, I always tell everyone this, John. So if this is your first time listening to this podcast, if you have a phone, right, that you're listening to the podcast on, which you probably are, if you listen to it on your mobile device, most likely take out your notepad and take notes. That's the best way to you get the most out of these. So I always take notes. So one of the things I was going to write down here is the stigma. I wrote down stigma. Okay. That is so true. So I'm glad you actually brought that up. It does have a stigma. It has a negative stigma to it. It's like a, a slow, uneventful like offense is what people think about it. And it's not, it doesn't work in today's game because the athletes are bigger, stronger, faster, and so forth. So that was the first thing I wrote down is the stigma. Thank you for covering that. Cause that is a topic I wanted to ask about. It was from the whole time I was going to interview you over the last like three weeks, just thinking about the interview. I was like, yeah, that's, I wanted to discuss that because it's not, there's not a lot of light on it, but I appreciate you like shifting the perspective. So people actually understand it. Um, now, as far as the four ways that you can beat a team and you know, I, I'm just thinking about the teams that I've coached and the various personnel packages that we've had. Um, th there's been times where we've beaten teams in all different types of ways, whether it was faster, slower, more space. We were more physical, but we were smaller than everybody, that kind of thing. I'm curious, do you, in your opinion, being an expert in this field with the Princeton offense, do you feel that that's, the way you neutralize whatever, like you can utilize whatever package of players you have and it can, and it can work. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And again, 
your, your offense is just one part of the strategy. So let's just go with the, the typical, um, everyone's typical thoughts of the Princeton offense, a slow down offense. Well, the reason they're running it slow is because the team that they're playing are they're just superior athletically. And at the highest level, you see that all of the time. You know, Northwestern playing Michigan State, Northwestern playing Ohio State. You know, it's it's like, you know, the, the, the level of talent and athlete and athletic ability is just completely different. So if if I take my Northwestern team and I try to run the same offense or the same pace that Ohio State wants to play, you know, probably going to get run off the floor. So we want to try to force them into um, playing our style of game. So whoever can, and we'll say that whoever can control the tempo, whoever can control the style, you know, if, if they don't have the advantage of trying to bring the advantage back to their side. So, um, and there's other ways to do that. So if I were trying to slow a team down, when I go scout someone say, Hey, you know, this team, they, they score a lot in transition and they get a lot of offensive rebounds. So I might say, Hey, fellas, ladies, tonight, we're not sending anyone to the defensive boards. We've got five back. And all we're trying to do is get back on defense so that they can't get anything in transition. And then when they put a shot up, we, we've, you know, refocused our, uh, um, we refocused our strategy on boxing out, rebounding. Let's hit the bigs inside. Our guards fly out and get the rebounds. So we'll just try to limit and take away our opponent's strengths. But sometimes also in that situation, your offense, I mean, and, and again, this is a little controversial, but coaches will say, and, and I was always preached this as a player when I was at Ohio State. They had it on their, um, on their T-shirts. It said defense wins. And I get it. And I promise those for coaches who are listening to this who know who I am, I coach defense too. I think we do a really good job at it. But sometimes the, your best defense is also your offense. And I always use this analogy with my coaches. This is Bill Belichick and Peyton Manning. Bill Belichick's number one strategy for Peyton Manning to beat Peyton Manning was to not let him on the floor, not let him uh, have the ball. And if Peyton Manning doesn't have the ball, he can't score. So that was also – uh, one of the big strategies that Princeton offense is they would, they would use as much of the shot clock as possible. And in most high schools, I would say most high schools still don't have a shot clock. And if you can run more, uh, if you can force that defense to guard you a little bit longer, you're taking away the amount of repetitions that they're going to have to score on the other end of the floor. So that's just a, another kind of an exaggerate. And, and, and I tell you what, the, the bigger the gap between your talent and their talent, the bigger that, the bigger you have to exaggerate that that contrasting style of play so awesome i didn't actually i'm smiling the whole time you say that so john without you didn't even know this about me i am a coach and i have said the same thing over and over so, some coaches get worried about what i say online sometimes they're like oh hold on because i always like i've i play defense i take pride in playing defense don't get me wrong i like to to get physical with guys i've always been that way but like i've always said you can't win unless you put the ball in the bucket more times than the other team puts the ball in the bucket. So I don't care how good a defense you play. If you can't score, you can't win. So I have a little bit of a shifting personality and a, and a, a different philosophy on like that side of the thing too. Cause I'm like, I, I take pride in my shooting. I've always been a shooter. That's been my whole entire life. Three point shooter. That's what it is like always. So I always teach kids how to shoot consistently. You've got to mm -hmm. get your shot. Yeah, and, consistent. and at the same point, it's like, you know, as, as a team, when you're at a disadvantage and again, it's, it's not about you putting the ball in the basket either. It's just not letting them do it more than you. So it's right, like, right. How, how, how can we you know? We also like, like if, if you are a, if, if you're an underdog type team, you might not want to run a pressure denial man to man defense because, you know, while that is a, a, a defense is going to create some deflections, create some more 
scoring opportunities, you're, you're going to give, you're more gambling. So uh, when you're running that, that type of defense, so a lot of teams that don't have um, the talent, they might run more of a pack line or at the most extreme, they'll, they'll run a, some kind of zone, two, three zone, one, two, two zone, three, two zone. They'll run some kind of different strategy more conservatively on the defensive end. So ultimately, and I, I know we're talking about the Princeton offense, but you, you try to, you want to match the style of play on offense as the style of play on defense. It's just, just to maximize everything. So it, it really does come down to the, your full game strategy because everything's got to work together. And some coaches will want to slow it down offensively, but, but on defense, they want to press and run. I'm like, no, but you're, you know, you're, you're, you're just banging heads here. You're, you've got two different, two different strategies you're trying to accomplish at one time. And, and that's when things don't, are not congruent anymore, but, but, um, yeah, no, that totally makes sense, man. Like I said, I was just smiling because I've, I've said some similar things, but yours is more so just saying, Hey, it's not like, Hey, you got to put the ball in the bucket more than the other team. You just gotta like, it's, it's actually more of a defensive strategy sure. using offense the way that you're. And, way that you and let me it. just give it, let me just give an example about the other one. Cause coaches will say, well, if we run Princeton, um, cause, cause my, my, my philosophy is I'm going to be the underdog if I'm not the underdog in every game, I'm going to be the underdog. Even if, if I'm in the underdog in every single game I play or the last game I play, it doesn't matter. I have to have a strategy to beat someone that's better than I am because I know eventually, even if you're going to the state level, national level, whatever, there's going to be that team that is always the bigger bully, right? There's always going to be that team that just, they're just that much better than you. And if we try to run toe to toe, it's going to be, well, who's got the best player? Cause all things equal talent wins. All things equal, talent wins, and then but skill is the ultimate equalizer. Um, but if I if I take that around, so I, I have our coaches we're putting in the Princeton offense like this weekend, and I, I take it. So we um, let me just kind of go like some skill stuff. We teach all of our players to post up. Pr most Princeton coaches will teach their guards to post up as well as their bigs. So you know a lot of coaches say, well, if you can't shoot threes, you can't run Princeton. Well, can you teach your guards to score in the post? Because if they can't shoot threes, let's get them as close to the basket as we can and teach them how to score down there. And then and the coach will look at me like, oh. But when you do post up, your, whether you're posting up a guard or posting up a big, if we're, we we teach something called uh, hook shots. We teach slide hooks. We don't teach the Magic Johnson hook over the middle of the floor, but yeah. we teach them to get across the lane and we teach them to spin back so they always have the last to come off of. And if I'm 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 five eleven six foot. If I've got six two, if you're guarding me, I'm walking by you. Steve's got a couple inches, or Shane's got a couple inches on me. And if I'm if I'm trying to score on you in the post, and I try to just say if I just try to jump hook, you know, you've got three inches on me. It's going to be very difficult for me to create separation and score over top of you. But if I can get in there and I can slide hook, I can create separation and score over top of a taller player. And it's kind of like the fast slow thing. Like we're, we're we we have an offense that we can run slow and control tempo. But on those nights that we are the more talented team and we have the slow slow down offense, you don't have to hook hook shot over that over top of that player. Just jump hook and just score over top of them. You're better than they are. So sometimes in the post, I'm gonna, I'm going to have a strategy to score over top a taller player. But when I'm the taller player, just jump hook, just score over them, just jump over top of them because you're bigger, faster, stronger than they are. So it's like coaches will get that. Um, like, well, I don't want to run the slow down offense because this team we're playing tonight, we can just run them out of the gym. We'll just run them out of the gym, you know, on, on that given night. So ho hopefully that, hopefully that connected a little bit. Totally, man. And, uh, take a lot of, uh, I, I appreciate your thought there too, of like teaching guards how to post up. That's a lost yeah. art apparently now, John, uh, it's wild to me. Consider I I'm from Idaho. We're coaching in Idaho. Let me tell you something in Idaho. 
typically speaking, you're going to see like a six foot four, six foot five guy like playing the five because we don't have a ton of height across the, the board here, which is wild because that's when we go and play these AAU club tournaments at different states. You're like, oh, dude, six foot four is like that's a wing, man, at any division one level for the most part, unless they're highly, highly talented and they're shorter. But like there's a lot of six foot four point guards out there. The NBA, yeah. Steph Curry, six three, dude, like he's not little. So uh, even though he seems small to the public is like, no, dude, he's actually pretty tall. Yeah. Six three one ninety is pretty, pretty big guy. So, um, what my whole point is is like the guards, however, who are actual guards that are like five ten, five eleven, six foot, like they have no idea how to post up. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just wild, and it's 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 weird to me because I'm like, dude, we're all guards. You should all mm -hmm. be posting up because if six foot five is a post, like all of you guys should be knowing how to how to do this. Anyway, it, it just it adds a complete another level to their game and. One thing that if, if you do want to run an offense like the Princeton offense, I don't like hiding players on the court. And that that's a, a popular statement among coaches. Hey, look, if you've got kids that can't do anything, we'll just we'll just run mover blocker and just make them be a screen. All they all that kid does is screen. And Bobby Knight would always he would always joke with Mike and Mike in the morning. He's like, look, if I had Mike Golick and you're underneath the rim and there's no one around you and the ball falls into your hands, don't shoot it. Throw it back out to this kid who can, you know. Um, but in, in, in my philosophy is I want to develop every player as a threat. That doesn't mean that they have to be the kid taking over. That doesn't mean that they have to be the kid forcing shots. It doesn't mean that even if they are in the post, that they have to score in the post. But, you know, we utilize backdoor cuts. If they can catch the ball and get a layup, if they can catch the ball in the post, take two dribbles, rock it back, get across the lane. But even if they can't do that, they can still be a threat because a lot of times who's the better passer on the court, your guards or your bigs? And what kind of what kind of uh, shots as as a shooter? Where do you like that pass coming from? Usually, it's inside out. Like when you're when you're yeah. working on your game, it's usually someone's rebounding. It's it's inside out. It's inside out. Um, or if, if we get an offensive rebound, that it's that ball coming from the inside to out. Those are usually your highest percentage three point shots in a game. And if you put a guard, maybe maybe can't score, but but they get in there and they are usually better passers than say your even your bigs in the post where they're making a move and then boom, they see something and they just kick it out and it's an inside out three. So not only do they have to be, not only do they, they don't need to be a threat offensively, even if we're teaching a guard to score in the post, but now they're in position to where they can still force the defense to collapse them because I'm going in to shoot a layup, defense collapses, I kick it back out, shoot the three, make one one extra pass, shoot that three, drive again, and just you know manipulating moving the offense, manipulating and moving the defense. But if you have five players that are a threat all the time, this is, one of those ways, well, coach, my guys can't shoot. Teach them how to score in the post. Teach them how to pass it out of the post, you know, and then do some movement with your offense to create lanes so they can get in there and, and make all that happen. So that that's 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 really what we do with this offense. I love that. I absolutely love the philosophy of making everybody a threat in some form or fashion. It makes the defense always have to be on. It makes the defense always have to think, which over the course of a game makes them tired because they're like always having to be alert of what this person can do with it. If they can't take a break, it's like a body shot in a boxing match. It wears them down over time. I think that's a really cool philosophy, just making them all a threat and making them feel comfortable with the ball in their hands. There's something about confidence, John. I think like the kid, you can tell when a kid doesn't have confidence, like it shows on the court, like it completely. But if somebody has the ball and they're confident with the ball in their hands, whether they're going to score, where they're going to pass, like they're confident having the ball in their hands. They know that they can at least do something with it. It's dangerous out there. You can open up a lot of opportunities. So Super, super cool. I want to I want to get to this point, though, of like what you're doing online. So we've talked about Princeton offense. You obviously have a lot of knowledge about it. You just talked about 
you know, your, your clinic that you ran, like, mm. I want to know what services you're providing so that coaches that are listening to this can take advantage of what you're doing. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I think we started about the fall of 2019. I was actually in Boise, Idaho, came up to your boy, Steve Larson. Okay. I got you. Uh, so and that, that was the, the time that I decided to say, Hey, you know, um, I've always been entrepreneurial. And in fact, my, my, my father owns his own business. He's been running his business. Uh, well, he's been in that industry since 72. He's been, had his own business in 86, but it really wasn't my passion. This just happened. to might be my passion. Um, and through some other circumstances, I kind of want some personal circumstances. I won't go into too much. My son got sick and had to do a lot of things. I had to stay at home, be a stay home dad for a little bit. I had to find something else to do. So it's, I kind of like, well, let me just do something that I know, start talking to people that I, that are um, interested in the same kind of things. It just happened to be coaching. So uh, we kind of launched this thing in 2019. Then uh, the plan was to get on the court and start teaching this offense to coaches. And what happened was COVID happened. So everyone started, you know, doing stuff on, on whiteboards and stuff and zooms and all of that. And I did the same thing. I'm like, I kind of feel like I've got the best whiteboard in the business. Um, and I'm like, if I'm going to work with coaches online, cause I'm really like, I've never done like whiteboard type stuff. I'd rather just do it on the court. Um, but what we did is we, we've uh, built up a community of coaches who are underdogs and we're introducing them to, or we're, we're breaking down all the stigma of the Princeton offense and showing them how to apply that to their program. Um, and we're, now we, we, we have online programs and courses. We have um, now we're running clinics, two clinics a year, one pre-summer, one pre-season. My philosophy there is like when I'm coming into the summer as a coach, I kind of want to experiment with things, try new things out because it's not, it's not, you know, win or lose is not uh, the most important thing over the summer. We always want to, we're always striving to win. We're always competing to win, but I want to see, I want to try different tactical things. Like we have the strategy that we want to um, implement. And then the offense is the tactics that executes on that strategy. And I want, Hey, I want to try this movement over here. I want to do this. So we'll, we'll do a clinic pre summer, usually April, sometimes May. And then we'll do it. Then we just, so we just finished a clinic uh, uh, this past weekend where this is preseason. Now we're really focusing on, not only are we still focusing on teaching the offense, but also how do we install the offense? Because learning the offense is one thing installing the offense is almost a complete new thing. And then on top of that, it's, you know, teaching your players the skills and how to execute that offense. And let me just, one of the, one of the big things about the Princeton offense, depending, you can simplify it as simple as say running flex, or you can complicate it, say the way that Princeton and Air Force and Richmond run it uh, today. So you can really, we, we kind of take them through that. And here's, here's my thing is like when I, was first hired as a head coach. I was learning most everything from watching the Air Force Academy. And I wanted to run my offense exactly like them. And when I became a head coach, I did. And we did a really good job of it, but there was no reason in the world for me to install that complicated of an offense with the high school players I had compared to the highly recruited players that they had. I mean, even at the Air Force Academy, it's, it's still night and day, the players that we had. So what I try to teach coaches is, I don't know your personnel and I don't know the personnel you're competing against. I don't know if, if you're, if you're the top dog in your league or if you're the underdog in your league, but if you want to, so my approach to teaching this offense is here's everything available that you can run. Here are all of the X's and O's. Here are the four strategies that, that you need to, that you, you need to use to contrast the style of your opponent. And then 
here's how you implement it. Here's how you install it. Uh, here's, and, and we, we think Princeton coaches think a little bit differently than everyone else. I think that's also a reason why, um, why I, I really kind of gravitate towards them, but, but we're, we're trying to teach coaches how to put this offense in that fits best for their situation. And again, I, I can't be with every single coach, but I, I feel like it's, it's in, in the truest sense in the, in the biggest cliche, you know, you, you teach a, you know, um, you give them a fish, you know, if I, if I were just give them the offense, you know, they go put it in. And then I was like, coach, this offense didn't work. I was like, ah, I was like, because some coaches will say, this is how I run the offense. This is how you should install the offense. And I'm, I'm more like, Hey, this is the offense. Now you need to take it and adjust it to what's best for your situation. And, and coaches are smart. Coach like, man, you know, we have a lot of, we can really get up and down the floor uh, versus our opponents. How do you run this offense up tempo? I was like, well, all this, passing and cutting and moving. Well, we can take this part out and this part out and this part out and you can get the scoring actions a lot quicker. You're like, oh, I like that. That's going to work for my kids. And and once they kind of have that broad view of it, then they can start to personalize it for their program. I freaking love it, dude. This is so cool. And I too, like I, I, I gravitate towards your personality because I have an entrepreneurial side to me as well. I mean, I work a full-time job, but I love, I love coaching basketball. It's one of the things I do. I run two different media businesses. I, I do a lot of things on the side. So I, I just like your personality that I, you're I take, able to take I, I, your I, I, skill set into it. Oh, a head coach and an entrepreneur are like, they're both on the same oh. level. They really are because that's, again, like, like being a leader, you know, not everyone wants to be the boss. Not everyone should be the boss. You know, not everyone needs, you know, not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur, but it's, but for those of us who are, you know, it, it, it's, it's being an entrepreneur is a lonely profession. Being a head coach is a lonely profession. No one understands what head coaches go through. Um, uh, my mentor, Jeff, he'd say, like, when you slide down 18, in, 18 inches on that bench, it's like, you know, it, it, it's just different. It's just different. It's a lot more responsibility, a lot more pressure, a lot more stress. Um, but, but some of us want that. Yeah, man. Some of some of the people are built for that, man. That's or, or cool. just a little crazy. So, I don't know. so yeah, you could call it that too. They do call it the one percent crazies for a reason. But John, where where do we find your information? You got a website, social media that we can put? Yeah, in the podcast? I, I, and, I, and I tell you what, if you and we're, we're constantly, we're actually going through a shift right now where I'm kind of restructuring a lot of things for this uh, fall uh, and this fall and winter in 2023. But if if you ever want to look up more on the Princeton offense, go to theprincetonoffense.com. Or go to PrincetonOffenseLive.com. That's our uh, the domain for our clinics. And if you look me up on Facebook, just look up uh, the Princeton Offense Mastermind on Facebook. It is the largest gathering of Princeton Offense coaches in uh, one place on the internet. Hey, so I'm going to repeat these as I was typing them out. The PrincetonOffense.com, yep. PrincetonOffenseLive.com, and then the Princeton Offense Mastermind for Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I got those. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So here's, here's a question as we're wrapping it up. When's the podcast coming out where you can just be sharing this insight with people, man. I need, I need to know as a podcaster, I got to know when your podcast. I, I know. So I'm, 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 <laughs> buddy, buddies that are, that are also uh, working with coaches online that I talked to all that. It's like, it's like, you talked about that podcast coming out two years ago. What happened? We're just doing so much implementation. I haven't gotten to it yet. So, um, this fall, this winter though, I'll be launching, um, a lot of content on YouTube and then, uh, then I will be launching a podcast. It'll most likely it's going to be called the Princeton Offense Podcast, so they can kind of look for that. But but nothing's up right now. So check back in a couple months. Look us up. Um, if, if you find me in the, in the Facebook group, or if you go uh, opt into one of those, the PrincetonOffense.com or PrincetonOffenseLive.com for our clinics, um, and get on our email list, 
you will trust me. Once we start marketing, once these things come out, everyone's going to know about it. We're going to be making a lot of noise. Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah. And I was just messing with you too, man. Like yeah. I just say that like, so I need, need to throw it out there. Cause I, I will listen to it as well. Like I love, I love people like yourself who has this yeah. knowledge, like continuously, you know, sharing that. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you do, John, and I'll be in contact with you for sure. And Absolutely. I'd encourage those who are listening. Yeah. Like go, go sign up for his email list, get on those, get on that, get in inside of this uh, community of his, that, of, uh, especially if you're a coach, I have a lot of coaches who listen to this and aspiring coaches. I would also encourage you guys to jump in. You know, John can be a mentor for you. If you're not, if you don't got one, listen to John. He knows what he's doing. That's what I'm saying. So, uh, John, I just want to say thanks, man. I, th I appreciate yeah. you taking the time out of your busy freaking schedule to be able to, you know, join me and do this episode. And yeah, just thanks so much. And, and I appreciate your time, brother. All right. Thanks a lot, Shane. I really appreciate it, man. Appreciate you. For all those who are listening, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so it can get out to more people. And we'll be coming to you next week with another interview. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.